You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Dave Barry. This program originally aired in 2013. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Dave Barry. In addition to having an absurdly appealing sense of humor, Dave Barry has two best-selling novels, a Tony Award-winning show on Broadway, a TV series, a few screenplays, and a Pulitzer Prize to his credit. Insane City is his latest work of fiction, a comic suspense novel set in Miami, the wacky and demented city Barry calls home. Dave Barry took to the stage at the Music Hall as the house band Dreadnought played. He talked about his rock and roll ambitions and the insane city that is his muse. Thank you. Dreadnought. Thank you. So I'm, I'm in a rock band also, not, not as good as them, um, and th- which is sort of caused me to get out of writing books for grown-ups for a while. Um, the, the band I'm, I'm in... Uh, we just actually disbanded um, the, the Rock Bottom Remainders, which was... <laughs> these people have never heard the band. That's why they're applauding. Um, there are a lot of good authors in the band. Stephen King, Amy Tan, Mitch Album, Ridley Pearson, Roy Blunt Jr., Scott Turow, Greg Isles. And the premise behind the band was that we would um, we'd get a bunch of authors with musical talent together to raise money for charity. The problem turned out to be that none of us had any musical talent. But... <laughs> We played a genre Roy Blunt Jr. described as uh, hard-listening music. Um, but we, we didn't stop uh, for a long time because um, it was fun. We enjoyed it. Amy Tan had the best line. She said, I would do this to kill the whales. Uh, we never did, we never that we know of killed any whales. Um, but that's only because they didn't listen. Um, but anyway... The bass player in the band is Ridley Pearson, terrific uh, thriller writer. And he, about, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, was in my, visiting uh, Miami, staying with me, because the band was playing at the Miami Book Fair. He told me he'd been reading uh, Peter Pan to his daughter, Paige. His, Ridley's daughter's, daughter's names are Paige and Story. Um, <laughs> and, and Ridley... He said he was reading Peter Pan to Paige, and, and she, asked, she was six at the time, and she asked him, how did Peter Pan meet Captain Hook in the first place? And really thought about that when he got to Miami. He said, I have this idea. Maybe I could write a prequel to Peter Pan. And I said, I, I, that sounds cool, you know. And he said, well, you want to do it with me? And we did, and neither one of us had ever written books for, for kids before. We ended up writing a book called Peter and the Starcatchers, and we, uh, it, it ended up ballooning. We ended up writing a bunch of those and, and gotten involved in a lot of things because of it. So for, for a number of years, that's what I was doing, and um, it was fun. I really liked writing books for kids. I especially liked getting fan mail from them. I want to read to you. This is my favorite ever letter from a fan, actually from two fans, two fifth-grade boys sent me this letter about one of Ridley's and my books. Both of us think your book is one of the awesomest books out there. Just to warn you, two authors that our book club has written to have died. (laughs) We hope that the curse skips you. And they sign their names and it says, P.S. For most of this letter, we alternated writing three words at a time. Um, Anyway, 
Those are kid readers. So I thought maybe I'd go back to writing for grown-ups for a while. And I wrote a book called Insane City. It's a novel. It's set in Miami. Um, Miami is the insane city of the title. I live there. I live in Miami. I moved there in 1986 uh, from the United States. And I think of myself as sort of an ambassador for the city of Miami, uh, which needs an ambassador because it doesn't have a good reputation. Every year, the Zogby organization does a poll where it asks people what they think of major metropolitan areas, what their impressions are. Every year, uh, Miami does poorly in that poll. The most recent one I'm aware of, 67% of the people responding said they thought of Miami as a dangerous, violent place. Now, that hurts those of us who live there. We read that, and we want to track those people down and kill them. <laughs> because, yes, it's a little different, but it's, it's a great city. Um, you just have to make some adjustments if you go there. Mainly, it's, it's the diversity. It's a very, very diverse city, and the diversity reveals itself in a number of ways. One of them is the way people drive. Um, I don't know if you've ever driven to South Florida, but it's not like anywhere else, even not like Boston, which is the other city that everybody always cites as having terrible drivers, but it's different. When I first got to Miami, I thought, nobody here knows the law. I now realize that everybody in Miami is driving according to the law of his or her individual country of origin. <laughs> and apparently there are some countries where it's traditional to put on the left turn signal first thing in the morning, you know? <laughs> Maybe put it on the night before just to make sure it's working. <laughs> it's the only place I've ever lived where the driver's manual shows you how to give the finger. <laughs> where, where people will pass you in a car wash. Um, <laughs> in, in addition to the people from many different cultures driving in Miami, you also have a, a lot of uh, senior citizens, a lot of retirees in South Florida. These are folks who I think did not drive for most of their lives. I think they took public transportation and then they retired, then they lost the vast majority of their sight and hearing. <laughs> and they moved to South Florida and got driver's licenses, which down there come with your Happy Meal. <laughs> then they get large automobiles. They like to have a lot of mass around them. Sometimes they get two Oldsmobiles and have them welded together, you know. <laughs> but somehow in the process, they leave out the, the front seat. So, <laughs> like that, you just see the hands driving in front of you. Um, that's why Miami leads the world in a certain kind of accident. I've never lived anywhere where this kind of accident was so common. It's the kind of accident where a motorist drives into a building, <laughs> sometimes fairly far into the building. And it's, it's not a building that sprang up at the last second. <laughs> the building had been there for some time when the motorist arrived. And it's on the news almost every night. There's a car, usually driven by a senior citizen, in a building or sometimes in a swimming pool, uh, but usually it's a building. And every night, the, the TV news guy says the same thing. The driver told police he thought his foot was on the brake, when in fact it was on the accelerator. Now, we have all made that mistake. But how long did it take you to figure it out? You have to wait till you're in the salad bar. Now, I know you think, you think I'm exaggerating, so check this out. Google this if you wish. Uh, three years ago, Miami police stopped a 73-year-old man driving a Chevrolet Cobalt. That in itself is not so unusual. It's where they stopped him. Runway 9, Miami International Airport. <laughs> the 
this man, without realizing it, burst through the perimeter gate and was on the runway when they stopped. That shows a striking lack of awareness as a motor. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm driving and I realize I'm tailgating a 757, <laughs> I would say, I'm not on the expressway anymore. Here. Here's the thing. That's my airport. I'm there all the time. I can't get near a plane there with shampoo. <laughs> this man was out there with the cobalt, you know? Me, I have to go through the security where you do, do that just with me. Um, you know, the first time I did that with that thing, it was at Miami International Airport with the new scanner. I take that, assume that kind of weird position, and then they scan your body and send an image of your naked body to a TSA agent in another room. Or Facebook. Uh, we, don't, <laughs> we don't really know what they're doing with the image, do we? But um, the first time I did it was at Miami International Airport, and... You know, I'm in the line, and I do the pose, and I go through. And then there, you have you know, a line where there's a guy with an earpiece clearing them one at a time. He, he cleared everybody in front of me, and then he told me that I had to go wait in this little penned-off area. He did not explain why. So I'm, I'm over there. I'm standing there. And it, several minutes pass, and nobody tells me anything. And meanwhile, my luggage is on the other side of this area, and I have a flight to catch. So finally, I wave the guy down, the guy who sent me there, and said, can you tell me what this is about? And he said, you have a blurred groin. I said, what? He said, your groin is blurred, um, which is not something you want to find out at the airport. You know, you know. But anyway, I, I do urge you to come down visit sometime. It's not bad, Miami. Um, come down visit. The one thing, you, don't, you want to avoid coming uh, during hurricane season, uh, which runs from June through the following June. <laughs> I've been through a number of hurricanes. The worst for me personally was Hurricane Andrew. 1992, which passed directly over uh, what was my house. And that was not particularly amusing, Hurricane, but there was one kind of funny thing that happened as a result of it. At the time of Hurricane Andrew, I had two dogs. I had a large main dog named Ernest and a small emergency backup dog named Zippy. <laughs> now, you need two dogs in case your main dog goes down in the hurricane. Uh, but anyway, prior to Hurricane Andrew, I let Ernest and Zippy out every morning via a two-stage procedure. And if you've ever had a dog, you know that going out in the morning is a very big deal uh, to the dog. Dog is very excited about it. Dog can't believe you thought of it. You know, even though you do it every single day, you know, you, whoa, we're going to go out. That's a great idea, you know. <laughs> so two-stage procedure. I would open the back door to the house, and then we had a patio with a screen enclosure, which you need in South Florida to keep the mosquitoes from stealing your patio furniture. <laughs> and... So I'd open the back door, Ernest and Zippy would run across the, the patio to the screen door and wait by the screen door very eagerly until I'd get over there, open the door, and let him out into the yard. So that was the procedure, and we did this for years. Back door, screen door, yard, and they, they learned that procedure. So anyway, comes Hurricane Andrew, and the screen enclosure is orbiting the earth. <laughs> it's gone. But the screen door was still there. So some of you are dog owners. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Just a door with nothing around it, but yard. It was about a two-week learning curve. <laughs> there was time I'd open the back door, and Ernest and Zippy would run to the screen door to wait. <laughs> wait eagerly, because that was the procedure. 
This is why I believe the least realistic television program ever made was Lassie, because <laughs> here you had this allegedly brilliant collie dog living on this farm with this unbelievably stupid farm family. <laughs> These people were so stupid, they never left the kitchen. Every episode, they're looking out the window going, how come all the neighbors have crops? And it was a good thing they didn't go out, because if they did, they got into some life-threatening danger. <laughs> Especially the little boy, little Jeff, who later became little Timmy. And they didn't even notice that. That's how stupid these people were. <laughs> he would fall into the quicksand, or sometimes the well, but usually the quicksand. Like, every week, this kid's in the quicksand. Who the hell buys a farm with that much quicksand on it, you know? So, a typical episode, Jeff slash Timmy is sinking in the quicksand. Lassie goes racing back to the farmhouse, barking, whimpering, scratching on the screen door, clearly very agitated. This happens every single week on this show. A family of even minimal intelligence would figure this out at some point. They go, huh, the little moron's in the quicksand again, isn't he? But not the Lassie family. They'd go, what's wrong, girl? Are you hungry? Now, a real dog would go, yeah. I'm hungry. I'm always hungry, you know? She'd come in. She'd eat. She'd spend the rest of the evening licking herself. She'd forget all about Jeff slash Timmy. By the end of that episode, he's bubbles in the quicksand. Tune in next week, they get a new little boy named Billy. <laughs> but not Lassie. Lassie would make them go rescue him, then they'd go back to the farmhouse, and everybody's happy, and Lassie's in the corner filling out the agricultural subsidy form. Um, <laughs> but the point I'm making here, which you may have forgotten, is that Miami is a wonderful city. <laughs> so we have a, a new attitude down there, new tourism promotion slogan, come back to Miami. We weren't shooting at you. But it is an excellent place, Miami, to set a novel because weird things happen there. Weird thing, things happen in, in South Florida that, that do not happen anywhere else on earth. Uh, Carl Heisen, the great South Florida writer, says, you don't really need an imagination to set a novel in South Florida. You just need a subscription to the Miami Herald <laughs> because you can't make up stuff weirder than what's actually going on. I'm going to give you an example. Have you heard of the Florida Python Challenge? Bear in mind, this is a real thing. We have a problem with Burmese pythons in South Florida. These Burmese pythons are these pythons that really shouldn't be here. They should be in Burma, wherever the hell that is. That's why they're called Burmese pythons. But they're very large constrictors. They get to be 15, sometimes 20 feet long. And people bring them over the years, have brought them to South Florida to keep them as pets. And there's a very good reason these people do that. They're idiots. Because as I say, these are giant constrictor snakes. Why would you want that as a pet? So people let them go or they escape. But over the decades, enough of them have gotten out one way or another, and they have congregated in the Everglades, which is right next to Miami. Miami is really part of the Everglades. We just don't admit it. The Everglades turns out to be this ideal environment for these pythons. They have no natural enemies there. They eat everything, including the alligators. It's just wonderful for them. And they're having wild python sex. They're reproducing like crazy. And the estimates are that there are hundreds of thousands of these things now out there. They're just taking over everything. So Florida had to deal with that, the state of Florida. And you know how well we deal with problems down in Florida. Um, our motto is Florida, 
you can't spell it without duh. Here's how, here's how we decided to deal with the pythons. We don't have drones, so what we did, we held, it ended yesterday, the Python Challenge. And I urge you to go to pythonchallenge.org to check out the whole website because I can't possibly do justice to it. It's much funnier than anything I'm about to tell you. Basically, though, we invited people, anybody from all over the world, to come down and kill our pythons. And we put up a cash prize, $1,500 for whoever kills the most pythons, $1,000 for whoever kills the longest python. I'm not making any of this up. But we're not, you know, you can't just come down and kill pythons. No, sir, we have a qualification process you had to go through. You had to pay $25, which kind of rules out a lot of your lightweights, python hunters. <laughs> and to make sure you were really qualified to go out and do this, you had to take an online course. A short online course. Ask anybody who's ever, you know, tracked big snakes in a swamp how they learned how to do that. A short online course is, of course, the way to... <laughs> so, well, a thousand people came down to do this. and God knows where they came from. But anyway, they paid their $25. They took their course and went out there. And the rule was that you had to kill them, the pythons, humanely. And the pythonchallenge.org website explains you have, to, you have to destroy the brain of the python. You can't just cut the python's head off, which is the way I would think to do it. Why? Because according to the Florida State Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the python's brain keeps working. It keeps thinking. They don't say what it's thinking. <laughs> I'm guessing something along the lines of, holy crap, you know, where's my body? I'm, I'm having low self-esteem here because of this. It's inhumane to the python to make it keep thinking that way. So you have to destroy the python's brain. So anyway, they ended it yesterday. It was a month, month of the python challenge. Bear in mind this, the numbers now. We had several hundred thousand pythons out there. A thousand people participated in the program. The total number killed, according to the state of Florida, the total number of pythons killed, 50. <laughs> yes, sirree, that'll put a dent in the prop. 50 pythons dead. Um, of course, the, I'm not a biologist, but I'm assuming that in that same month, a couple of mother pythons probably laid some eggs, you know. <laughs> Probably gave birth to a few hundred new ones. So, in other words, the Python challenge is a clear victory for the pythons. <laughs> but my point is that is a, you know, if you were to write that into a novel, people would laugh at you and they say, "Well, that's nobody would. That, what kind of state would be that stupid?" Florida is that kind of state. <laughs> I'll give you one more example um, of, it's, of something that happened in South Florida. You cannot imagine it. I could not imagine anyway happening anywhere else. This involved a person I know. His name is Kurt Ivy. And when it happened, he was the chief of police of a city called Homestead, south of Miami. And as chief of police, Kurt was asked to speak at a Citizens Crime Watch meeting. So it was a pleasant evening, and they held the meeting outdoors on somebody's patio, and the neighbors gathered. And so Kurt, chief of police, Kurt Ivey, is explaining how the Citizens Crime Watch is going to work. And it's going really well, right up until the point where Kurt is almost hit on the head by a 75-pound bale of cocaine falling from the sky. Again, this really happened. A smuggler's plane was coming over from the Bahamas. It was intercepted by a U.S. Customs Service jet. And the smugglers, not wanting to be caught with the cocaine, were flinging the bales out as fast as they could out of their plane. And they flung about 20 of them out before they were finally forced down in, in Naples on the other side of the state, which set off a treasure hunt in the Everglades the next day. <laughs> but my point is, if you were to write a book 
a novel, let's say, and you had a scene in there where the chief of police of a town is speaking to a citizen's crime watch meeting and a bale of cocaine falls out of the sky. The critics would roast you for making up such a ridiculous thing and gilding the lily and all that. It had to be a citizen's crime. But it actually happened in Florida. The only thing that has not happened, and I'm pretty sure it's only a matter of time, is that the pythons will get hold of the cocaine. Um, which would be another story in itself. But anyway, that's sort of the background why I set uh, my book, Insane City, in Miami. It's just a natural place to do it. We're going to take a short break now where, where I'm going to go off the stage and then turn around and come right back on the stage. I'm not sure why I'm doing this, but I was told that's what I was going to be supposed to do, and I'm going to do it with Virginia. And then when we're going to continue our conversation, and uh, I'll answer your questions. But anyway, I'll be right back. That's author Dave Barry, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. When we return, we'll try to keep the laughs going with a conversation about finding the humor in the news, his latest book, Insane City, and the best way to travel with a dead shark. That's when Writers on a New England Stage returns with Dave Barry, a special broadcast from Word of Mouth. Dave Barry, great to have you here. Good to be here. Do you notice how our hair, are, are, we have exactly the opposite hair? Yeah. We, we worked on that for a long time. We, we agreed backstage that if we were to touch our heads together, they would explode. <laughs> you know, that may be the great surprise of the evening when I, we touch our heads together. So you all get to see what's happening. Actually, that might lead to one of our first questions here. Are you keeping the agent who booked you on a tour in New England during February? <laughs> I have a theory about um, book tours, uh, which is, and I'm, this is my third, deep into the third week of a uh, book tour, which is that they figure your book will be worth a lot more if you die. Oh, really? And that's the actual purpose of the book tour. Uh -huh. is, so maybe that fan letter, you know, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> uh, you mentioned moving to South Florida from the United States. How did you really know when you were home there? When did it feel like home to you? Oh, when I stopped really caring that, you know, a car would drive by and have bullet holes in the side. <laughs> no, it was, it was a gradual... It was not so much that it, at some point I said, I'm home. It's when I would go away someplace and I would think, wow, it's cold here, when it would be like 58 degrees. And I thought, I, I need to get back to, you know, where it's ridiculously hot and humid. Um, so it was more that. It was just sort of gradually accepting that I liked it, where it was hot and humid and crazy. A uh, question from the audience here. What is the best form of transportation in Miami to transport your dead shark? <laughs> well, this is actually referring to a, an actual incident. I could have done a lot more. This could only happen in Miami. But this is a true story. This is actually one of my favorite things that ever happened in Miami. There were two homeless guys were fishing in Biscayne Bay, which is the city is right along Biscayne mm -hmm. Bay. And they caught a six-foot nurse shark. And they wanted to sell it. There's some restaurant wholesalers on the Miami River, sort of the other side of town. But they had no um, way to get there. They didn't have a car. They were homeless guys. So they decided to take public transportation. 
And we have this thing that goes around downtown Miami. It's called the People Mover. It, notice it's not called the Shark Mover. It's, called, it's really meant for humans. It's a commuter device. But these guys got on at rush hour with the shark. And the shark was not dead at this time. Shark was kind of moving around. Shark was obviously very unhappy to be there. So were the other commuters, one of whom, that's how I found out about this woman, you know, sent me an email saying, I've been in Miami a long time, but this is ridiculous. There's a shark on the people mover here. So they, what I, what, the story kind of kept going. They, they couldn't get anybody to buy it. The next day, the Miami Herald tracked this whole thing down and talked to some of the wholesale guys and said, we're not going to buy a shark. You know, like, but, so they left it on the street, and a state was lying there overnight, a shark in mid, the middle of downtown Miami. My favorite quote was from one of the shopkeepers the next morning who came in, and he opens up his shop, and he looks, he's looking out the window, and he sees a, there's a shark in the street. And he said, I was really upset at first because I thought it was a, a body, so I was really relieved that it was just a shark. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a feel-good story, Miami style. It's just a shark. It wasn't a body, thank God, you know. How many times do you reckon you've said, I'm not making this up? The thing about it is, um, I lie a great deal, you know, always have. And like when I, when I started writing humor comms, I, I, there were always lies in them. And, and I learned that people always took them seriously. People would, like I would write, you know, the light bulb was invented by Abraham Lincoln. You know, I would, inevitably I would get 50 angry letters, you know, from, you know about that, you know. And they, 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 half the time they'd say something like, you idiot, the light bulb was invented by Henry Ford, you know. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't always be right, but they would definitely know I was wrong and they wouldn't get that I was kidding. That was the thing. They wouldn't get that I was kidding. I once wrote a column about going to Paris. I went to Paris, and I wrote some columns about it so I could deduct it on my income tax. Um, no, there's no need to laugh there because that's not a joke. Um, and I, one of the columns that said, um, among the sights to see in Paris are the Louvre, the Arc de Triomphe, and the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> Just a nothing, you know, throwaway joke. So I got a whole lot of mail about that sentence. Really? Yeah. We, people were upset? Call yourself a travel expert, you know? And... All the people who wrote and told me that Pisa was a city in Italy and the Leaning Tower Pisa was there, I would write them back. I wrote, if they give me a, a return, I said, you know, dear, your name, you're mistaken. The Leaning Tower Pisa was moved to Paris in 1983. Um, For tax purposes. fun with the, you know. And I got a letter back from a Mrs. Herbert Harder of Denton, Kansas, who enclosed a copy of her original letter to me, a copy of my letter back to her, and a new letter that began, Dear Mr. Barry, I checked with my travel agent. Um, <laughs> she had me there. But I guess the point is, and I do have a point here, over the years, I've, I've concluded many, many, many lies in, in my comms. They're mostly lies. But every now and then, something funny would happen that really did happen, like the, uh, okay, the shark on the people mover or the bale of cocaine falling into the citizens' crime watch me. And I feel like if I just write that, somebody, everybody's going to think I'm just lying, as I usually do, making things up. So I would say, and I'm certainly not the first person to use the expression, I'm not making this up, but I would say, I'm not making this up. And it became associated with me, although, I, I, again, I didn't invent the phrase. I, don't, I have no idea how many times I've said it, but it's a lot. You started out as a general assignment reporter, however, right? Uh, so when did you switch to a humor column? Well, I always, I always tried to write humor. Um, when I was in high school, I wrote a humor column for the Pleasantville High School paper. When I was at Haverford College, I wrote humor columns for the Haverford College paper. Uh, when I, my first newspaper job out of college was at the Daily Local News in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It sounds like the newspaper Superboy delivered, right? The daily local news, which is a small-town paper that it actually, while I was there, once read a headline, a woman beats off would-be rapist. Um, which... 
which I gather, I'm, I'm getting won't be on the radio here. But anyway, <laughs> what you could, you could at the Daily Local News. That's all right. No, just take your time. And, and, but at the Daily News, if you know, you did everything. So I would write, you know, obituaries, cover fires, school board meetings, whatever. But they would let you write a column if you wanted to. So um, once a week, I would write a little humor column, and that's really how I got started doing that regularly. Have you ever done stand-up? That's a question. No, no, I never, I never did stand. I don't. I really don't want to. I've known stand-up comedians. Talking to this audience tonight, it's pleasant for me because presumably, unless they're illiterate, they came here because they knew I was going to be here. You know? <laughs> so, so they're predisposed to at least not hate me. You know, but if. <laughs> If you, if you look at what stand-up comedians do, they get up in front of people who don't know them necessarily, like they're the opening act or they're, you know, they're in Topeka and they don't have any fans in Topeka. You know. They have to be willing to accept the fact that they may fail to utterly, like don't want to be laughed at that much. You know? Well, how hard do you work at being funny? Pretty darn hard. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but work. No, I mean, I, you know, I think it's fun to, to you know, think of funny things, but you, you, to, to give a serious answer to the question, you have to be serious about it. I mean, if you're going to write a column, you really have to actually produce the column. You can't just sit around and say, I'm a funny guy, you know, it, it's kind of, or, or write a column you already wrote. You have to kind of come up with a new column entirely. Um, so that takes time and effort. Again, I'm not comparing it to coal mining, which I'm sure is much more difficult. How do we get through the current economic condition with humor? Asks someone from the audience. With just humor? <laughs> Good luck getting through it with just humor. I would say a combination of humor and money. And if you have to give up one of the two, give up the humor. That's my advice. Okay, so you settled in South Florida. You talked about this kind of diverse mix of people who settle in South Florida. And there's a, a character in your book. His name is Dan Seckinger. He's manager and founder of what would become Primate Encounter, which figures prominently in the book. And, and the evolution of Primate Encounter sort of in some way illustrates these vicissitudes or, or uh, you know, the ways that South Floridian entertainment and money-making has changed. Can you tell us a little bit about this place? The basic reason I had to have Primate Encounter was one of the key characters in my novel is an orangutan named Trevor, uh, who ends up playing a critical role and actually becomes sort of a love interest, but I don't want to get too... <laughs> There's tremendous character development of Trevor. Trevor uh, actually day. has quite the, he plays quite the role. He didn't start out that way, but he, he kind of fought his way into the book and, and will be played in the movie by Brad Pitt. I understand. <laughs> okay. But anyway... Primate Encounter, so I needed, a, I needed a place for him to be, and, and I invented this place called Primate Encounter. And it was sort of one of these old Florida roadside attractions, which they're kind of dying out. They either have to change themselves or die. But it started out with this guy, Dan Seconder, who was actually, I named him after a parent on my daughter's soccer team named Dan Seconder, and who I, I don't think will sue, I hope. But it, he originally started with a roadside thing. It was just, a, you know, it was you know, these dangerous snakes and actually, most of them were dead. He would just find snakes on the road that had been run over and pose them in the crates in such a way that you couldn't see the tire tracks on them. And kept the lane. And when the tourists would ask, he would charge people like a quarter to get in and look at the, the dangerous snakes. And when they'd ask why they never moved, he would say, they're night feeders. Um, and then he gradually acquires new animals. And this is actually kind of true of South Florida. People 
take weird pets. I, the example I gave earlier was the pythons, mm-hmm. but also monkeys and tigers and ostriches. People have very strange pets in Miami. I don't know why. I mean, I'm talking in urban Miami. Every now and then, an ostrich gets loose or a cougar. You know, big animals. So he ends up collecting them when people get rid of them. And, so, and then he, he, of course, has to keep up with the time. So he goes from being, I think it was originally called Serpent Jungle or something like that, and ultimately becomes Primate Encounter. And, and has, you know, of course, it's green and gluten-free. Much more sustainable. Yeah. yeah, sustainable. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. <laughs> gluten-free. Yeah, gluten, pla- you know. Gluten plays a role in this, but I, I have two guys talking about um, the whole thing about gluten. I don't know. I can remember, call me an old guy when gluten was okay and we ate it freely. But now <laughs> it's considered very dangerous. I believe you could hold up a bank with gluten. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Do what he says. He's got gluten, you know. Um, Well, let's talk a little bit about the characters in this book besides Trevor, Trevor the, yeah. the orangutan. Tina, she's very successful. She's a human rights lawyer. She's beautiful. She could have her pick of whatever bachelor she wanted, but she picks Seth, who is a tweet whore, He's by the t- way. He tweets for a living. He's a, or as we like to call them when we send me an e- angry email, social media professional. Oh, right. I, I got in some trouble with the social media professional community for... For calling, calling him a tweet, tweet whore? whore, yeah. What, what does he tweet about? He tweets about a variety of products, including forklifts, energy bars, and douche. <laughs> so what is you Tina... You just wanted me to say douche, I didn't you? you did, like... you know. We can get away with those yeah. things sometimes. So what does Tina see in him? Well, Tina is, as you say, she's very successful, kind of type A, rich, beautiful, successful, cause-oriented Washington attorney. But she wants to run her life and she wants the guy in her life to be second to her. So she picks this guy, Seth, who's a nice enough guy. He's not very successful. Very get-along, go-along kind of guy. Good-looking guy. You know, he'll be genetically perfect for her. He's perfectly willing to accept his role as sort of subordinate in the marriage. Her parents are not happy with him, and her friends are not. But she decides uh, he's the guy for her. And she has planned the, uh, the perfect wedding. And I base this part of the book, the, the book centers around a wedding that's supposed to take place uh, at the Ritz-Carlton in Key Biscayne in Miami. And I, I kind of loosely based it on the experience I had three years ago when my son got married. And he married a lovely woman. I love her. She's great. Laura, if you're listening, you know that's true. <laughs> but um, have you ever seen what happens to a young woman leading up to the wedding? The, the bridezilla, I think, yeah. is the evolution. Yeah. That they go. They or their, devolution, I don't know. They lose their minds. The, uh, the wedding industrial complex gets hold of them and, you know, they, they read these huge bridal magazines and they have wedding consultants and cake people and caterers. They become obsessed with all the details of planning the wedding, which has to be perfect. That's the stress. It's got to be, the day has to be perfect. You know, and the, you have, the videographer has to do this, 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 and this, or your day will not be perfect. So she becomes more and more concerned about all the details and the videographer and the caterer and so on. The groom becomes a minor appendage in this process. And I understand it. You don't let the groom plan the wedding. If you let men plan weddings, there would be skee-ball at the reception. Okay, I understand. <laughs> but the way it works now, he just is kind of pushed completely out of the picture. And you, you don't, you're not totally sure the groom's going to be invited to the wedding. You know, he, <laughs> she may just forget. Um, and then, of course, when the day comes, it's, you know, it's all over in no time, and, and the, she comes back to reality. She becomes a normal human being again and realizes it's kind of silly, and nobody ever wants to look at her stupid video, including her. I mean, it's hard enough to go to the wedding and watch that. You know, we don't want to watch your video also. 
I'm sorry if there are any brides listening to this, but this is the truth. So anyway, that, I, 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 was, I wanted to combine like sort of the, the weirdness of Miami naturally with the bubble of weirdness that surrounds any big, fancy, elaborate wedding. Mm-hmm. And so this wedding comes down to Miami, and that turns out to be its, its downfall. Also bubbling up, is, or maybe that's a strong undertow here, another story of Lorette. She is a Haitian immigrant with a little baby and a young son who wash up from the sea into it, this scene. But, you know, why, why put this family of refugees in this humorous book? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, it does actually happen. There's another element of the book that is based on things that happen. People do wash ashore in Miami regularly. No, they do. Not just sharks? They do. Really? Yeah. People, you know, boats, rafts, and sometimes swimmers appear on the shores of Miami regularly. Really? Yeah, especially right around Key Biscayne where this wedding is set to take place. So uh, what I have happen in the book is Seth, after a horrendously um, messed up first night there, uh, is lying on the beach wasted, and he ends up rescuing this woman. It's just before dawn, and her two children from the surf. He saves her life, and so suddenly he is now responsible for this Haitian woman and her two kids. The law is such, in, in Miami, if you're Cuban and you come ashore, you can stay because the law says you're fleeing political oppression. If you're Haitian, you can't stay. You have to go back because it's, it's economic hardship and they're not allowed to stay. So both people, both groups come to Miami. One group is allowed to stay and one group either has to hide out or get sent back. And she's that group, the Haitian group. So Seth doesn't know any of this. He doesn't care about causes. But he, he just now suddenly, suddenly finds himself responsible for this woman whose life he has saved and her kids. He would like to just get rid of her and go on with the wedding, be the groom. But he feels responsible for her. She's trying to find her sister who's in, in the city, and he ends up taking her into his suite to care for her while, she try, you know, while her friend tries to find, find her sister. Um, meanwhile, Tina, who would care about causes... She's a human rights lawyer, after right. all. She cares about the undocumented. She deeply cares, except she just wants him to go away because she's wrecking her perfect wedding. You know? <laughs> so that becomes the tension. You know, they have Seth, the, the slacker, suddenly being... The guy who has to do the right thing, and Tina, the civil right, the rights activist, suddenly uh, wanting to just make them go away. And that, that's kind of the heart of the plot, and you ask why. And it's because I wanted there to be a, 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 something that happened to Seth during this, this weekend. I wanted him to, I wanted him to be, the, be the guy who you focus on and, 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 and go through the transformation when he realizes he can no longer just be a bystander as he's been his whole life. He has to actually take responsibility for the first time and do something. Mm-hmm. That's the dynamic of the plot. Now, it's wacky funny all around that, I should say. <laughs> but that part is pretty darn serious. In fact, when I was writing the book and people say, what's it about? I would end up talking about Haitians. They go, that's not funny. <laughs> so, that's I so want to stress funny. how funny it is. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. It's hilarious. Well, there are all these characters surrounding this. There's the, what, fourth place finisher in the Miss Amateur Hot Body contest. That's right. Um, Who ends up, like Trevor, kind of taking a dominant role after a while. Mm-hmm. Trevor falls in love with her, actually. Yeah. But she's not really that interested. <laughs> he in kind of just likes females. He likes, well, he's been in a cage for a long time. <laughs> and then you also have a, a kind-hearted stripper. Lodon. Mr. Moneybags, uh, Wendell Corliss, who um, ends up just buying things for the ridiculousness of it all. Well, Wendell, Cor- yeah, I have a, a billionaire. He's the friend of the father of the groom who's been invited to the wedding because the father of the groom wants to impress him. Well, he's in the group of 11. The group of 11. And he wants to be in? The group of six. 
The, the billionaires it's much more get, exclusive. They, they want to keep getting in smaller groups, <laughs> um, more exclusive groups that exclude the other billionaires. So Wendell Corliss, actually one of my favorite characters, because he, he ends up through a, a sequence of events that absolutely could happen. The, um, batch, the rehearsal dinner has as its dessert a, a, a batch of brownies that were brought by um, Seth's uh, mom and dad that they, they carry everywhere they go that they get from her sister out in California. These are special brownies um, that they take for medicinal reasons they become very, very fond of. And they accidentally get served at the rehearsal dinner, so everyone eats them. Nobody knows this. Wendell Corliss, the billionaire, has never had any form of medicinal marijuana in his life, any kind of marijuana. And he ends up on the beach with this, this kid, Marty, who's the best man, who's a complete slacker, loser. The two of them have this long, complicated conversation, the kind you have under the influence of uh, marijuana. And they get hungry and they get the munchies, and they end up buying a pizza restaurant. Um, <laughs> because that's what happens when you're a billionaire. You have... Because they don't deliver, so they just, okay, we'll buy the restaurant if we have to. <laughs> well, is that the message, you know, that if you do, you know, eat pot brownies, it raises a lot of barriers? Or it's just good to be a billionaire. Yeah. I it's one of the other messages. <laughs> but we can see who has power in this book, right? Lorette, no power. No she, power. Could, she's, she could get bounced back to Haiti in a minute. Yep. Wesley, uh, African-American man, you know, when he's threatened to get thrown out of the hotel, he has no recourse if they call the police. But then you have Megan, the sister of the bride, very wealthy, steals a police car, you know, leads a police chase. She knows she'll get out of it. I mean, is it class? Is it race? Is it money? What's the, what's the story here? Well, everybody gets out of it. I mean, the thing about the, the book is um, there is actually no, no real pure villain in the book. There's some people you don't like, at least I don't like, and there's some people who behave kind of badly, but there's nobody out to just be evil. Everybody's just sort of got different agendas all the way through. So in the end, when I was, you know, and you get to decide, you're God if you're the author, What's going to happen to all these people? I really didn't want anybody to suffer too much because I didn't think anybody had really been that, that bad, that awful. But this is speaking to sort of Miami's collision of cultures. And, and why does it work there or does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, that's why I think Miami is so weird. Most cities, sooner or later, people say, this is where I live. And they sort of start to adopt whatever the culture is and accept whatever the hierarchy is. That never, ever happens in Miami. It keeps cha- changes way too fast. So, I mean, like, just the way our political system works. Um, I proposed for years that what we should do after each election is, in a single ceremony, we swear them in and indict them. Just to <laughs> speed things along. Um, but, the, you know, the turnover is very rapid there. There's no real society. People just show up, and all of a sudden they're famous, and then they're gone, and they're, you know. And nobody ever kind of just blends in with anybody else. Everybody just continues doing whatever he or she was doing when he got there. People come down there. They were Jets fans when they got there. They stay Jets fans. They don't become Dolphin fans. You know, nobody ever changes. And nobody's there for a serious reason. People come there to escape, to party, to retire. But nobody's there to, like, build the community. It just doesn't happen in Miami. So I don't remember what the question is, but that's my answer. Uh, does it work there? <laughs> that, that does it. But, you know, Florida, South Florida, Miami especially, have been your comic foil, I guess, for a long time. Does anyone ever take offense? Does anyone ever? No, that's the beauty. That's exactly what I'm just saying. If you were like in Des Moines, and I don't mean to rip Des Moines, but if you make fun of Des Moines, some people will go, yeah, Des Moines. But a lot of people will go, what do you mean? It's a great city, Des Moines. We have a, a ballet. As soon as people bring out the ballet, you know, they're <laughs> getting a little defensive. Or the, we have a museum, you know. But in Miami... Nobody ever does that. Everybody goes, yeah, man, it's really crazy here, isn't it? You know, the mayor says that. You know, nobody, 
the, the thing is, when I, when I got there, there was kind of a last vestige of trying to make it sound like a normal place. It was still going on, the Chamber of Commerce. And they were all upset about the, the, the drugs and crime image that the city had. It's just like early 80s when I got there, and, and literally big bales of uh, marijuana would wash ashore regularly. They were called square groupers. That was the nickname. <laughs> but I, I myself saw several times square groupers on the beach, you know. It happened. And there was, you know, a lot of violence and stuff. And the, you know, the, the city was all upset about it. And they were always trying to run these tourist promotion campaigns that would suggest somehow that we were a family-friendly city and everything. And then when it all changed, it wasn't that the city changed, but Miami Vice came along. <laughs> You know, and here's a TV show, the whole point of which is, this city is completely full of drugs and crime. Isn't that cool? You know, <laughs> look how cool these guys are driving around in the, you know, in their pastel, you know, cop uniforms and driving these sports cars. So it became cool. And Miami sort of said, oh, we're, we're never going to be Orlando. We're not really, you know, a family-friendly destination. We're different. We're exotic. We're exciting. And that's kind of what Miami is sees itself as now. It's a town, a town where there's lots of clubs and parties and athletes and movie stars like to live there and people show up just to party and stay for a couple of weeks, get wasted. I mean, it's that kind of city. And nobody, nobody minds that so much anymore. That's, I think they sort of accept that's what it is. I wonder how, you know, you used to write a column for many, many years. You stopped, what, 2005, is it? Yeah, so I writing, stopped writing right. weekly. I still right. write sometimes, he said defensively. But... <laughs> But I, well, I'm wondering, you see all these things going on in Miami. Are there, are there any things that you really feel like, I want to write about this in more than 144 characters? Because you do have a very active Twitter feed. Well, I, I do. Um, so, I mean, like, I wrote a column about the Python challenge. Mm. That was easy. That took about 30 seconds. Um, but every now and then I do write a, a column about Miami. Just, you know, something happens and the Herald will say, would you write about it? So I still get, I still have an outlet for it. This is your first How many novel? columns have you written? <laughs> no, kidding. It's about 37. I think I counted yours today, <laughs> how many books you've written. It's well over 30. Yeah, it's a bunch of books, but some of them are very short. Some of them are compilations of columns. Some of them I wrote with other people. So the actual number of total words I myself have written is about the equivalent of one chapter of a Stephen King book. Okay. <laughs> Here's a question here about uh, collaborating. What, if anything, is different about writing collaboratively? Would you do it again? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I wrote a whole lot of books with Ridley Pearson. And that was really fun. And I wrote one book with a guy named Alan Zweibel, who was one of the original mm-hmm. writers for Saturday Night Live, a book called Lunatics. And that was also really fun. I, I mean, I enjoy it. In the end, you sort of want, I mean, in the end, I, I view those as aberrations. And one of them just lasted a long time because it did so well, the, the Starcatcher's books. But I really prefer writing my own stuff and just making all the decisions. You don't get any arguments when you're writing your own stuff. I mean, I, Ridley and I... <laughs> We used to get in the most ridiculous argument. We're writing a prequel to Peter Pan, right? So, but we would have to figure out the plot ahead of time, you know. And, and I remember once yelling at Ridley, and I was really angry. I wasn't kidding. I, didn't, I wasn't being funny. I, I said, a mermaid would never do that. <laughs> then maybe this question follows perfectly. Can you recommend a good forensic plumber? Uh, <laughs> the uh, book Lunatics that I wrote with Alan Dwight Bell is about two characters. He would write one chapter, and then I would write a chapter, and we would send them back and forth. And the two characters hate each other. My character was a guy named Jeffrey Peckerman, and his job was he was a forensic plumber. And when I wrote that into it, I wanted to think of the stupidest profession I could think of. And he's very pr- And it turns out there are, in fact, forensic plumbers. Um, <laughs> like if somebody dies by, and they claim it, you know, he, he, he committed suicide by flushing his face into a toilet, you know, or something. 
then the forensic plumber is called to, to say whether that could or could not happen <laughs> with that particular model of commode, you know, <laughs> testifying court. I was reading uh, in the past couple of days in the New York Times and in the Boston Globe interviews with you, and they all ask you about what kind of books you read or what kind of books I you read. I hate those questions. You well, know what? What is that? I mean, what, when did you become a man of letters? For... I never was, but thank you for <laughs> pointing the that insult, out. I think. That was it. No, but you know what? I can never remember. The, the simplest question is, so who do you find funny? And, and I, I, like, I kind of always blank on that. And there's a lot of people I find funny, but I can never think of their names at that moment. So. But I really hate that, you know, which books are you reading? Because you always think I should say something impressive. Marcel Proust. Yeah, always Proust. You know, sure. but, but usually it's some horrible airport book I'm reading, you know. <laughs> okay. When the Dead Rise, what deceased authors would you invite to jam with the rock bottom <laughs> remainders? Geez, did Jimi Hendrix write any books? Does it have to be an author? Because we well, already suck. The authors all point. suck. Well, he authored song. He wrote songs. Okay, then I would invite Jimi Hendrix to, okay. to be the... Okay, I, and I don't know how... that you couldn't dig him up right now and he still wouldn't be a pretty good guitar player. <laughs> he was that good. I think Proust is spinning Proust, like Proust. a lathe in his grave right now. <laughs> Proust would be like our, our bass player, yeah. <laughs> Well, you did. T- well, you kind of did TV for a while. There was for four years on Dave's World was oh, on. CBS. I was not in Dave's World. I did. I have... know you weren't in it, but did, they, did you ever lobby for the role of of Dave Barry? No, no. I, I did have creative control over what I did with the check they sent me for running it. But um, no, Harry Anderson played well, me. Who, who was a better Dave Barry? Harry. He Anderson. was much better than I would have been. <laughs> um, acting is hard. I was on it one one episode. They asked me to come out the first year come out and have a cameo role it was harder than i thought because i had had basically one two or three lines but the first line was i need an air conditioner it was actually based on a column i really did write about trying to buy an air conditioner during a heat wave Mm -hmm. and i remember i'm flying out on the plane to la from miami practicing my line you know i need an air conditioner i need an air conditioner i need an air conditioner (laughs) and i get there and it's i meet everybody and everybody's very nice and but i'm doing a scene with harry anderson and they have this huge sound stage, and what you can't see when you're watching the, the show is that there are like a hundred people just out of the sight of the camera, light people, sound people, guys who just stand around with wires, and you know all these Hollywood people, and the director and the assistant director, and there's just many, many people watching you do this scene, and they have put tape on the floor. That was the part I didn't realize. You have to stand in a certain place for every line so that they get all the light and the sound and everything right. And the actors did this without even thinking. You know, they're just, they know where they stand, they remember their lines. But me, I, w- I was obsessed with, because they kept saying, you have to be here when you say this, and you have to be here when you, because my, you know, my tape was yellow, and mm-hmm. Harry Anderson's tape was green. So I, for like the first 37 takes, I walked over like, with my head like pointing straight down at the floor, you know. Like a person just learning, you know, look at how his, look at my feet. They're going one by another, one after another. And then I would straighten up and go, I need an air conditioner, you know. So I'm a horrible, horrible actor. They never asked me to, to come back to the show. Well, you have, you know, you've still had a lot of other great distinctions. You, right. Um, your, your band, the Urban Professionals, your other band, oh, played the, at the Tupperware headquarters. Oh, I did write, I did write Orlando, the Tupperware the blues. The Tupperware song. The original, the only blues song ever written about Tupperware. Well, a, a sewage pumping station in Grand Forks, North Dakota was named, named for you. And, the, and then, you know, the Pulitzer Prize. What was the greater honor? Well, I would say 
the sewage lifting station, because they've given a lot of Pulitzer Prizes away over the years. <laughs> but not everybody has a sewage lifting station in Grand Forks, North Dakota. The question is, and I still haven't got an answer, is why do they lift the sewage? I'm, I don't really want to they imagine go, that, I would leave you? it down there, you know, and I told them that. But they're bored. They're bored up there in North Dakota, so they lift it. Um, Okay, we are taping this on the night of the State of the Union. So it's the land of Dave Barry. What, what, what's the State of the Union? Tired. I, no. Um, <laughs> you mean... You can interpret well, it. Well, here's what... I know this is when the president outlines what he intends to actually do. The, you know, and here, here, my only thing is I hope he brings this up. It's about medical care. I, I don't really care what else we do about medical care in this country, but we need for the medical profession to find a way to get to the prostate gland other than the way they're getting to it now. <laughs> People say, what do you want? I say, what men want? We want a procedure where the doctor stands about 80 yards away and goes, looks good from here, Dave. (laughs) I think that's where we're going to end tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Literally end. (laughs) We do have a surprise for you tonight. Whatever could it be? Well, we have... Dave Barry going to join Dreadnought for a tune tonight. So let's have a big hand for Dave Barry. Take it to the bridge, Dave. Well, some men like a woman with a beautiful body. Some men like a woman with a pretty face. I like a woman with a big vocabulary. And every single little comma in place. I'm in love with a proofreading woman. I'm going to The incorrigibly silly author and would-be rock star Dave Barry performing Proofreading Woman with Bob Lord and Dreadnought there from Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. And by the way, Dave Barry and I did put our mismatched heads together after the show, and nothing happened. Not a decent hairstyle between us. Executive producer and live stage presentation director for Writers on a New England Stage is Patricia Lynch. Associate producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio's president is Betsy Gardella. The live show digital producer is Sarah Plord. Live sound and recording engineer is Mike Marchand. Musical director and band for the live show is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. This program was produced for broadcast by Rebecca Lavoy. To hear other authors from this series, visit nhpr.org and click on the Writers on a New England stage link to download a podcast or share some of these programs with friends. I'm Virginia Prescott, and from all of us here at NHPR and the Music Hall, thank you for listening to this special broadcast of Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm in love!
up for Dave Barry.